This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's now time for local poetry and discussion on Beyond Rhyme. Welcome to Beyond Rhyme. My name's Alan. This is for October 2022. Little did I know when I was born that I'd live to this age. Not that I'm old, but it's just when my father had his 50th, I thought, jeepers, you're old, Dad. But now that I'm in my 50s, I think I'm still young, so he must have as well. Um, This is a poetry show where we share poetry through having guests, and today we have John Allison, who is actually a published poet. We've had a lot of poets on here over the years and very few have actually reached the stage where they've been published by a publishing house. Uh, So welcome, John. Uh, Just before we get started, I'd like to thank Scorpio Books for their sponsorship of this show. Uh, They do a stealing job. They're on Hereford Street 120 in the BNZ Centre and they have the main store and a children's store now, which is quite popular amongst the young and families. So, John, welcome. Yeah, thank you, Alan. It's been wonderful to be invited. Thank you. And we were just talking before we went on air that it's different now with people with their masks off, with the, all the restrictions being taken off. Uh, to see people. I think I said to you I was out at the airport early one morning without knowing that the mandate had changed, and suddenly there were 300 people without masks, and they are all smiling and laughing. Yes. And I thought... Oh, that's what we've missed. It was a moment of kind of joy and grief at the same time, you know, to, yes. to sort of realise how much that is really human, isn't mm. a smile. Mm. Yeah. So as a host, I'd just be really interested as to how your poetry led up to being published and how it got published. I suppose that's just a first pivotal question for the for the evening. Yeah. Uh, look, I think um, probably like a lot of people, I wrote poetry when I was about 18 or 19, my circumstances were, were angst and grief. Uh, my very best friend, who I used to go hunting and fishing with, and uh, we were both athletes as well, um, he drowned. And so my heart went right out of that sort of thing. And instead, I found myself sitting in the places where we fished and shot ducks and so on. Sort of contemplative, I suppose, you know, just what life is about, what death is about, where is he? Um, and uh, poetry seems to me what you attempt when nothing else makes sense. Ah, I've got a poem that finishes yes. like that. You know, yes. sometimes poetry is all there is when nothing else makes sense. Yes. It's interesting, however, because I think in this last couple of years, poetry has become it become more popular. It's official. People are writing. People are reading. Um, also, I think we've been helped by Trump because so much uh, crap has been put over in the form of words. And people sense that poets are aiming at some kind of truth. Yeah? So, so I wrote poetry. I kind of knew I was a poet. My marriage certificate said poet. Oh. Um, um, I wrote little books by hand and gave them to friends. Now, so the first yeah, two or three decades, that's what I did. And then there was a point when I was about 40, 
when I thought, I really need to take this seriously. I've been asking permission to write. I've been feeling guilty about writing. You know, we live in this extrovert world where to be introverted looks something's wrong with you. Um, so I thought, I need to take this seriously. I need to actually learn how to write well, not just to write the things I like writing. So it was more of a craft, a technique question. So, uh, at that time, I was fortunate in meeting a group of people who are still my friends, well-known yes. poets like David Howard, uh, David Gregory, um, Bernadette Hall, you know, and we formed a group that talked together every month. I submitted, in fact, I was asked to submit to Takahe magazine and they accepted it immediately. Wow. So that was like, uh, oh, okay, I'm here. Um, I was told if you, if you, uh, I was told if you get ten percent of your submissions accepted, you're doing really well. Yes. In fact, for some reason, and it's not really for me to say why, um, my poetry was very frequently accepted. And in that decade, in the nineties, I was published in wow. maybe two hundred and fifty magazines around the world. Well, congratulations! Congratulations! Yeah, thank yeah. you. So, yeah. so that was. At some point, it was almost like, uh, how do I prove myself? Get another publication, get another publication, get another publication. And at some point, said somebody said, will you ever be satisfied? Yes. And I said, only the next poem counts. Yes. Um, and I stopped doing that kind of relentless pushing myself. Mm. At that, during that time, I had four, uh, three, three volumes of poetry published. And then I fell in love and went to Australia, and I never established myself as a poet there. I was actually working harder at um, uh, establishing my work, having an income. Um, being, Before we get to your, your, your first poem, yeah. um, do you think you have to go through harrowing stuff to be a good poet, or do you think you can be a good poet if you've had a good upbringing and a good start to life? Do you think... <laughs> History shows, doesn't it, that people like Mandelstam, who died in a, a Russian camp, <laughs> helped his poetry. The Irish have shown that suffering helps their their, their poetry. Um, a lot of the young poets who are really noted now in New Zealand have gone through pretty harrowing early experiences, often around identity or around racism. Yes. Um, when I talked with Beiruz Bachani, we both agreed by that there are only sad Kurdish songs. Yes. There's nothing there's nothing happy worth saying. Yes. You just live it. Yes. Yeah. So a bit of suffering can help, but that's okay. Everybody has a bit of suffering. You just choose what to do with it. Mm. You either avoid it or anesthetize it, or you write poetry. <laughs> Could I hear one of your poems? We're all waiting with sure. bated breath. Oh, okay. This is a really simple one. Um, I was in China in 2014. I should say that when I was 18, I fell in love with three cultures, ancient China, ancient Persia, and Provence, and I went to all three places. This is a poem uh, from the, the Li River in the south of China on a riverboat. It happened to be Qingming, which is the Chinese tomb-sweeping ceremony where every year there's a remembering of their ancestors. It's a very simple poem, and I chose it just because it's really just images. It makes a picture. Qingming. The mountains come down to the river, humped like herds of mammoths, bending to drink the pooled dusk. Sunset is a painted veil. 
The old man's eyes lift from the shrine towards a passing riverboat. Night wind. No stars. Sounds of water. Wow. That's beautiful. Oh, I like the mammoths, um, hillsides like mammoths. You know what those mountains are like in the south I of can China, just you know? It, yes, yes. Yeah, you know, and we all look at it and we think, oh, that's sort of fantasy, but it's not. Mm. It's real. They're incredible. I thought um, poets were sought after by the military <laughs> in China. I've got a poem about, about that too. Um, uh, well, I'll tell you the anecdote. I was uh, on a mountain called White Cloud Mountain. I mean, if you want a poet's mountain, go to White Cloud Mountain. And there were these Chinese characters inscribed on rocks. And I thought, oh, these are, the, these are the poems of the poets. And I said to my guide, so what does that one say? Oh, that is a, that is a slogan by Mao Zedong. <laughs> so they inscribed their political slogans in the same places as the poets wow. once inscribed their poems. Wow. Um, and what impact did China have on, on your life? How did, it, did it change your perspective or...? I loved it. Uh, so you're aware of being observed. I was there to I'd be participating in an education conference, and I knew I was going to say a few hairline things about freedom um, because you can't talk about 20th century Western education without talking about, you know, uh, the free, independent individual. Yes. So uh, I was very aware that I was being observed, uh, that uh, at least one of, the, one of the people in our team was... Uh, an informant. Wow. And so you become, well, they certainly are very adept at having conversations which Jeepers. skirt the territory. It has got worse. They now have facial, tech, facial technology, which means every single person is being scanned. Mm. And, uh, you know, the sort of science fiction stuff that we see in TV series. But I loved it. The people were really friendly, very lovely people. You That's know. one theme of your poetry, I think, is that what the West perceive in a government level is different to how it really is on the land. I think if you want to know what a place is, you go there. Uh, so we, I went to Iran, partly because it's hated. We've been taught to hate it. Uh, that's a political decision. Um, a, a, an interesting event there would have been that um, um, we arrived in a little village. This would be typical, just a tiny little village, a little roadhouse, uh, evening meal cooked on a barbecue, kind of barbecue, uh, half drum, charcoal, goat's meat on skewers, goat's feta, some salad, um, desert apricots and limes, sweet, sweet, sweet onion. Uh, and uh, everyone was sitting there with their arms folded, glowering at us in this little place. And sort of you take a taste of the food, it's just so beautiful, so immediate. And so just to put one's hand on, on one's heart and an open gesture with the other hand and just go, ah. Oh. Then they all laughed. Then they brought their children to meet us and now everything was okay. And yes. At some point, one of them said haltingly to my wife, uh, we thought you would want McDonald's. <laughs> and she said, we came here because there was no McDonald's. Yes. <laughs> uh, so tremendously friendly. Mm. Yeah, and so I've found that wherever I've gone, you just make a humble attempt to sit down mm. with the people. I think your poetry is very precious, and I'm sure the viewers think the same. So we'll take a quick break and come back and hear another one of your poems, yeah, sure. John. sure, and I'll read a very pretty one. Yes. <laughs> uh, the music we have for you is Bob Dylan, 
who's getting on a bit now. God Has I Been To You is the name of the album, and it's called Jim Jones. It's a collection of folk music from Europe, I think, and this one's a sailor song. So take it a while, we'll be back soon. Come and listen for a moment, lads, and hear me tell me tale How across the sea from England I was condemned to sail By the jury found me guilty Then says the judge, says he Over life in Jordan, sending Take a trip before you ship to join the iron gang. Come get to gay in money bay, or else you'll surely hang. Or else you'll surely hang, says he. And after that, Tim Jones is high up upon the gallows tree. The crows will pick your bones. It was high on the sea when pirates came along But the soldiers on our convict ship were full 500 strong So they opened fire and somehow drove that pirate ship away But I'd rather have joined that pirate ship and gone to Botany Bay With the storms raging round us and the winds of blowing gales I'd rather have drowned in misery than gone to New South Wales There's no time for mischief as they say Remember that says they Oh, they flogged the fortune out of you down there in Botany Bay The irons clang and lock for galley slaves We toil and toil and when we die Must fill dishonored grave But it's by and by I'll slip my chains Into the bush I'll go And I'll join the brave bush rangers there Jack Donahue and some dark night when everything is silent in the town I'll shoot those tyrants one and all I'll gun the vloggers down oh, I'll give the lot a little shock To remember what I say And they yet regret they've sent him Jones In chains to buy me back
Welcome back to Beyond Rhyme for October 2022. We are between 9 and 10 on the second Saturday of the month. So tune in and relax. We've told it can be quite relaxing listening to our show. Uh, with the poetry and the... I suppose our parts are laid back. Yes. Maybe I even say that. Laid back. Yeah, because they're relaxed. Cup and, of coffee over the road helps, doesn't it? Yes. And John's got a couple of three palms now just to show the range of his poetry. So I'll be quiet and just listen. I thought I'd like to read two poems which are quite contrasting, perhaps stylistically also. Um, we live in a rather cynical age. We live in a violent age. And sometimes a grandchild can remind you of the innocence of childhood. So this is a poem uh, with my five-year-old grandchild, Martha. It's called How to Sing Sunlight. And it more or less happened just like this. It was easy to write the poem because this is what happened. Look at the light dancing on the waves, I said to Martha. She is five years old. Sunlight is so hard to catch, she says, but it catches everything in the whole wide world. She sings a song. I ask her if she learned it at kindergarten. I'm making it up just now, she says. It's what the sun is singing to the sea and runs off dancing her song lines of the sun and sky and wind and sea, elated all the way across the sand into the open arms of everything. Wow. Some poems just write themselves. Mm. Yeah? There was another verse which I cut out on the advice of somebody. So we can't undermine the colour, brightness and exploration of a young child? Well... It's the only chance you have at innocence during your entire life, yeah? Yes, yes. Uh, by contrast, I'll read this. This is actually also a family-orientated poem. Um, I do think that if one writes personal poems, they actually have to somehow talk of wider concerns. You've got to somehow come to universal issues because who actually really wants to know about my life? <laughs> Me, actually. Uh, this is called The Send-Off, and the occasion is, in fact... Um, the, just after the death of um, uh, my nephew a couple of years ago. Uh, it's, this is entirely fictional, but it was sort of stimulated by thoughts of him. It's called The Send-Off. No longer the man he was, he is now more or less forever. Already so much younger in the minds of friends outside the church who narrate him to each other all those tales which constitute a last hurrah. Time and its operations will turn his body into worms and into words, as we speak of someone we once knew, have lost and may be found. Our stories drift across the graveyard, yes, like butterflies. Something lying dead in the hedge reminds us of its fact. The usual blackbirds chip at the edge of dusk. I love the way you create a picture of telling tales after the passing of the person. Yeah. Is yeah. That, am I right in saying that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, where is the person who has died? Uh, yeah. We can speculate, but one thing we do know is that he lives in our words and our tough stories. He lives in the story of the last week of his school. He was uh, kicked out of school by the principal. His father was the principal. Mm. That's a great tale to tell at a funeral. 
And just from curiosity, what is it like losing somebody younger than you by quite a way? Does it does it change your feelings? It's shocking. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, so I'm nearly 72, so the people living and dying all around me now at this stage of life. Um, I've had people die all through my life. But I think uh, if I, I think of uh, Richard dying and I think of his mother, my, uh, my uh, sister-in-law, whose husband had died just two years earlier, so they had a couple of bad years. Uh, what does a mother do? with the death of a son who was happy-go-lucky, loved by everybody, you know, could be a real rascal, but he was a good man, and suddenly he's gone. Could be a real rascal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's why he got kicked out of school after all. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, it makes, I think, it, I think the thing is that it makes you think about what it's all about. Mm. Um, and... Uh, if, any, if the death of the Queen has anything at all of relevance to us, and as I never knew her, I'm not going to say I loved her because I believe you can only love someone you know. Um, I respected her. Um, but what it does and all of that, all of that stuff that goes around us, it actually gives us an opportunity for our own personal griefs, for our own losses, for our hopes to be remembered. Mm. Yeah. Um, it made me think of wanting to lead a wholesome life, which I do, but there's things I could improve in. So it's sort of like an image of goodness uh, that I would aspire to now that I'm getting a bit older. It's yeah. good to learn a few things, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, on the other hand, um, not having lived an entirely wholesome life is material for writing. Yes. Yeah. Um, nobody really, apart you know, there's, there's that happy little story of my granddaughter, but nobody really wants to read poems endlessly about how nice it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have that in my life. I live in beautiful surroundings and a lovely little house, you know, with beautiful artworks around me, and I look out yes. at the hills and the light, and it's just glorious. I can't write too many poems about that, just a few. I don't really pick up much cynicism, though. It's, it's beauty. Yeah. It's real. It's not, it's not um, pulling things apart and twisting them around. It's... I, I've done cynicism, yeah. There were a few weeks when I've done cynicism. Um, uh, I, what I mostly thought is it's a form of self-harm, yeah, because you have hatred of something, but... Basically, there's something ill at ease in yourself that you would actually put down mm. anything else. Uh, I've thought about that, and I decided long ago that uh, I need to learn to forgive. I'm not talking in religious terms. I'm talking of existential, psychological terms. I need to learn to forgive because the old Chinese saying is that he who doesn't forgive harms himself a second time. Ah, uh, right. And that... Um, the art is is of letting go, you know, owning owning the owning your own shit and letting go of everything else. Mm. Um, because I can't change it, so why be nasty about it? Mm. Uh, it's just uh, adding to the problem. Yeah. 
We do that on FaceTime, Facebook all the time, don't we? Yes. We sort of have these threads of abusing one another, and what does it achieve? Yes. It's just uh, spreading, spreading viruses as far as I can see. We'll let John get some more poetry together to read and share with the, with, with the viewers at Plains FM. We'll take another break and we'll listen to R.E.M. The album is automatic for the people and it, the song is called Night Swimming. So hopefully that's enjoyable for us and we'll be back soon. Swimming 
deserves a quiet night Deserves a quiet A big welcome back to Beyond Rome. We're in the middle of our show now, so we're talking to John Allison, a published poet, and he is very clever with his words, and they create quite a picture when you listen to them. So, John, you have another piece for us. Yeah, this one's pr- this is an early poem. So there are people who say it's a very good poem. As I've said, I don't think I should be saying that of my own poems, but I'm happy if someone else does. Um... The way it came about was really interesting. So I've always been aware of this issue that we, uh, in our modern world, we are onlookers to so much, so much tragedy, so so much devastation, and it can become almost an entertainment form. You know, we can watch a bit about Ukraine every night. We forget the Israel, or don't notice that Israel has bombed Syria twice in the past month. Um, we are very casual onlookers, I think amoral, maybe even immoral sometimes. Um, But we are onlookers. It's just a sense of helplessness. And quite a lot of my poems that are politically engaged are not activist poems that I'm doing anything other than I'm seeing it. I'm a witness. So this poem, it does that. It's called Flight from Bombay. We would say Flight from Mumbai these days, but it was written back in the 1990s. Um, and its genesis came about. I was talking to a very fine poet called Graham Lindsay, and I said to him, there's a poem I really want to write. And he said, what is it? And I told him. I said I had trouble with it. And I told him. I just kind of narrated the story. And he says, why did you write it down? It sounds great just like that. So it's, somehow it's interesting how our colleague, a peer, can give you that encouragement of, you know, stop, stop worrying about writing a poem. Just write So I just wrote, and then it became a poem. Flight from Bombay. Jumbo jets and bumblebees are not supposed to fly. It's a defiance of the ordinary. Knowing this, I think lighter, discreetly try to levitate levitate against the seatbelt to assist the pilot get this thing up off the ground. After all, this is India, and such things happen, though I never saw a fakir lift off. I've seen the poor, however. Over there, just off the end of the runway, buffeted by the kerosene exhaust, the shacks lean against each other and another world. Stick figures scavenged through the rubbish. A woman, child clutched to her breast, crouches by the truck. She watches us, or maybe not. Still, miracles do happen. We're about to rise above it all. The engines roar. I feel the thrust of it. Huddled on the roof of a hut, a small boy, or perhaps it is a man, flies a yellow kite. Well, 
quite a lot of my poems just in a way trail off like that. Yes. Is it a boy or is it a man? Yeah, yeah. Is it a boy or is it a man? And those stick figures, because they're starving. They are stick figures. Yes, I picked up all that. I thought that was um, very well written. Yes. John O'Connor, it's interesting. John O'Connor, who was a very noted Christchurch poet, dead now, he did a lot for Christchurch poets. He actually said of that poem, it was interesting. He said, You should write more poems like that. And I quipped, Nah, I did that one. And that's a sort of an interesting experience when you've got something worked out and it works. Why would you repeat it? Mm. You know, so at this stage of my life, I'm starting to run out of subject matter. <laughs> yes, I like that. Uh, um, bumblebees and planes aren't meant to fly. Yeah, yeah. I was so when I was a little kid, I remember standing up in class and saying, "The sun is just a me-, you know t- morning talks. The sun is just a medium-sized star, and besides, bumblebees can't fly." Yes, and if, I was mocked. I think it was the last time I stood up in class and offered anything. Mm. Yeah, uh, even the teacher laughed. Now I think the teacher might have laughed with delight of the two things being put together. Mm. But actually, what I took at the time was, I've done something wrong. Mm. I've broken the rules. Mm. Um, maybe that's why I became a poet because, you know, it was crushed a little bit. Yes, one thing we are interested in is how the poet's processes. The way I work, I get thoughts into my mind and they get bigger and bigger and I think I've got to write this down. So I get a piece of paper and write it down and it all gets, my mind gets put on the paper in a poem and then I type it up on the computer and maybe share it with someone. I was just wondering what you do. It's almost the same, Ellen. Uh, Most of my poems come in the middle of the night. So I'm, I'm a bit wakeful. Uh, I think I mentioned to you I have cancer. I'm not supposed to be alive. Um, we talked about cynicism. I quite early on decided that um, I'd take the advice of the concentration camp survivor, Viktor Frankl, who said, there's one freedom we have, and that's to, uh, change, is to choose our attitude. And so I decided it was love and laughter, joy and gratitude. Mm. Um, simply because I do love the world. I love laughter. I love people who laugh. I uh, I have a lot of delight in my friends and in, in, the, and in my grandchildren, children and grandchildren, and in music and so on. Um, I think it helps my health. I also have decided I will not hate my cancer. I've written about that. I might dig up that poem. Yes. Um, because uh, there's a radical view, but I think it's true, well, it's true in my case. I can't say of anyone else. Um, <clears throat> cancer cells are our own cells gone rogue. So if you hate your cancer, you're practicing self-hatred. It's not poetry, is it? It's psychology. So I decided I will not hate my cancer. I'll learn about it. And actually, I rather admire it. It's quite powerful. Um, it hurts a little bit these days. But um, I have a kind of conversation with it. I call it my dark companion. Mm. And I say, I'm dancing with my dark companion, and he knows, yeah. and he knows all the moves. So that informs quite a lot of my poetry, is that irony. So not bitterness, not cynicism, but that kind of irony of um, staring death in the face. So I'm sitting up in the middle of the night, and there's words, and I note them down. And I work in a notebook, just with a pencil, and then I start to type it up. Uh, so I've got lots and lots of notebooks full of fragments. 
Yes. Very similar to your process. Yes. Just out of interest, where do you think New Zealand is heading in the future? Do you think? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's something I... So this is... I can only give a personal response that I think that what I'm concerned is some kind of act of reconciliation. I have studied the work of... um, Desmond Tutu and especially his daughter Info about uh, truth and reconciliation and I think here we are with I'm a t- I've been a teacher so I'm interested in the fact we now have a history curriculum I think it's extraordinary we didn't teach New Zealand history and now people are arguing about what sort of history we should teach and I say all of it histories because there's conflict and we, sh- we can't resolve the conflict by deciding this is the proper version we can only say, tell that version and this version, you know, whichever versions there are. And we have to learn to live in the middle of the conflict. We have to learn to suffer dissonance because I think it's a desperate effort that makes us think about peace, love and harmony. Mm. Uh, that might come, but I think, I again, I'm a white male in the mm. 70s. I, I'm just about. I represent just about everything that people think is wrong. Yeah. Um, and it's my job, as I did in Australia, to sit with indigenous people and just listen, and not correct them because they're right. Yeah. The difficulty is that there is another story. You know, that of white settlers, that of rednecks. Yeah. Um, the willingness to actually suffer the conflict is the way forward, and I hope. I like Waitangi Day as a protest day because it actually means we've got an official day where all sorts of stuff happens and we protect the rights of people to protest peaceably, but to actually have their say. Can't do that in a lot of countries. Yes. Look at the people who tried to protest against the monarchy in Britain. They got arrested. That's right. I saw that. I was quite (laughs) quite overwhelmed, actually. Yeah, no, not allowed any differing view. Yes. I think we have to learn that there's lots of differing views, and I think the great thing with poetry is we feel free to have our say. Mm. People will either listen or not, won't they? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Occasionally we write poems to each other. Mm. Uh, I've done that. Somebody's yeah. written a poem, and I've written a poem back. Um, it's like Bob Dylan writing to John Lennon, writing songs that are riffing off John Lennon, mm. and vice versa. Yeah. Um, dialogue, conversation. Conflict is the default mode. John's going to look for another poem. We'll take another quick break. And I thought I'd go backwards in time a wee bit. And this this one's called Summertime. Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. It's, uh, I quite like that type of music. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I, I think it's a wonderful era of music. And uh, we'll be back very shortly.
Welcome, welcome back to Beyond Rome. We've been going for two or three years now, and Camilla, our co-host, is away. She's kitchen handing in a rest home, so she's getting really fit. And she's a photographer as well, but we'll have her back uh, next month. Uh, John, did you fish out that other poem? I've got a few poems here. I've actually just thought of one that I'd like to. You heard it the other night. Not the one about Setnaran, um, the one here. Uh, this is, it's interesting to me where poems come from. Sometimes they reach right back to some experience you had a long time ago, you know. 
I had a I had a dream um, a long time ago, 30, 38 years ago, kind of apocalyptic dream. Uh, this perhaps touches on what we were just talking about, um, uh, what I said about reconciliation or willingness to, I suppose, a willingness to put ourselves in the picture, not just stand back and criticize. Um, its title is um, Embrace, Fierce, Embrace Fearlessly the Burning World. And that's actually from the last book of essays by a writer called Barry Lopez. He was a naturalist yes. and writer on the human condition. Uh, uh, went to remote places in the world and con connected with indigenous peoples. And that's something he says at the end of his life, will we actually find enough strength and imagination to, to love every creature and to love each other and oneself and to embrace fearlessly the burning world. So I had a dream, the world was burning, and we, broken, beaten, burdened, staggered up from the valleys onto the heights, and there we gathered, realizing many were hurt, some were missing. Anguish, shock, horror, graven in the grime and dirt of faces, blood and dust, red-rimmed eyes leaking tears. Many were crying out their despair while babies shrieked, and it said it all that the children were mute. Out of the smoke and fire came a weary old man, and we knew him, perhaps as Buddha or as Jesus, or Tefiti, Gandhi or Mandela. Or was it that man I saw just last week who swept the gutters by the boathouse? Or was I incapable of seeing clearly anymore? And really it was every woman who has ever lived still carrying it all. Yes, it was. And also all of them. And came there amongst us, looking tenderly, earnestly into each face. We felt understood, each of us, in his or her essential nature. There was consolation there, a solace, a moment of peace. And then that figure spoke. But I told you it would be difficult. And turned and walked down into the flames. And really, what other choice is there? Now, I sat with that story, it was a dream, for 35 years. Yes. And I tried to put it in form various times. And then the first Catalyst meeting this year, when I didn't have a poem, new poem available, I stood up and I said, I'm just going to try something here, and I improvised it mm. then and there. Um, and I, I, it's probably quite close to how I feel. Mm. Could you share a little bit about your dynamic in the writing group that you belong to? I, from what you told me before the show started, you, you're quite ruthless critics. <laughs> <laughs> uh, kindly ruthless critics, I think we might say, Ellen. Yes. Um, so this is a group that's existed for 25, 30 years. It's kind of began about the same time as the Poets Collective, the Canterbury Poets Collective, whose uh, first night is tonight of their new reading series, by the way. Um, and um, also the founders of Takahe magazine were part of that group. And... Um, we shared poems. Uh, initially, I would say that we were quite 
kindly, you know, you would read a poem and there'd be quite a satisfactory silence. People said, point out things that really worked. And now, 25, 30 years later, we're perhaps even a little more honest. <laughs> uh, so there's always something, I think, you know, we have tact. So there's always something where, where you have something to say that's positive. Last month, there was somebody who was the last person to read, and she read a poem that was simply perfect. Now, this doesn't happen very often. And all you could do was sort of go, oh, you know? It was just so brilliant. On the other hand, with somebody else, there was a poem that went over the page, and my comment was, probably should stop with that line at the bottom of the page. Yes. You know? I've been told, cross out, Cross out those ten lines. These ten, these these four work really well. Uh, but we have ways. We we know each other well enough. We have ways that we can actually say it. You know, mm. um, grammar. Something here. I can't quite follow this through here. Where's the subject of the sentence? It's wandered off somewhere. Uh, so that's a English teacher talking. Um, uh, sometimes it's whether the personal experience that the poem is based on is made into a form that other people will be able to grasp because actually insight into other people's innards is not nearly as interesting mm. as we pretend. Um, the poem needs to make us think about what's inside ourselves. It's all right to be motivated by others, isn't it? You don't have to do it all on your own self-propulsion. No, you don't. I heard somebody once read a poem... Uh, about digging a hole through to China. And I had two responses. One was I thought, oh, I did that when I was a kid. And the other was, I haven't written a poem about that yet. And I went home and wrote it and it was published. Oh. Um, because uh, sometimes you need that stimulus. Oh, yes. I could do that. Or, gee, that's dreadful. I could do that better. Or, wow, that's quite something. Could mm. I dare to try the same? Mm. And occasionally I have to say to people, that's just so brilliant. I wished I'd written it. Mm. We're getting closer to the end of the programme, unfortunately, but could you just tell us what role you see as poetry in society? Is it a honest appraisal of society or a critique? Or I think we've touched on it along the way, but I'd just like you to clarify what, yeah. what you think. Uh, we could talk for a long time about what poetry is because I think once upon a time we might have been brought up with an idea of poetry as being rhyming, structured on traditional subjects. Um, I still think that there's really not much to talk about other than living, loving, and dying. Um, its role... I, I think there is a role that is protest. There is a role that is of compassionate understanding. There is a role of anger and indignation. Uh, recently, a uh, climate protest anthology was published, and a lot of the poems in there are quite angry. Um, so there is a place for... Bursting the boil, you know? Yeah, you sort of burst the boil and there's a sense of relief. And so I think poetry, poets are uh, picking away at their own skin and picking away at the skin of the world. And sometimes we're looking for meaning, even if that meaning is meaninglessness. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think I mentioned earlier that a lot of poetry is being read now and a lot of poetry has been written now Partly because of the lockdown, what a perfect time to be an introvert. You know? Yes. Yeah, 
No, I know. I think I put on my Facebook page. Oh, good. My life is legitimized. Poets have to self-isolate. <laughs> uh, but we also there's a, a lot, like my poem about the burning world. Yeah, there's a lot that we have to be troubled by, mm. and we're probably trying to put it in ways that might just break through the skin of mm. somebody. If you could just describe briefly where. What shops took your book to sell? Was it places like Whitcalls or Scorpio Books or...? Uh, it's always places like Scorpio, uh, University Bookshop. Oh, yes. Uh, Unity in Wellington. Yes. Uh, such like. So the alternative bookshops, the mainstream bookshops, don't sell books. They sell commercial units. Mm. That's the phrase they use. I think the University Bookshop is full of textbooks plus... Plus the arts. Plus the arts. Yeah. 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 And so so a lot of that happens. A lot happens because, so if you take my last two books, which were published by Christchurch, Littleton Press, uh, Gold Hub Press, Roger Hicken has for 10 years or more devoted himself to publishing poetry. And he has a good mail order catalogue. You can buy direct from him. He advertises well. Uh, you get promoted. Copies get sent to reviewers. Of the, in the newspapers and the magazines, and with a bit of luck, somebody reads about it and says, "Oh, that's that's interesting." Yeah, you know, it was nice when somebody in America said, "Can I have one of your books?" Yeah, uh, uh, it's the most important, least read genre. <laughs> yes, we could talk for another hour easily. So, John, you might be invited back to talk to us, to us about some more. Time went by quite quickly, didn't it? Yes. When you're having fun, that's how it is. Thank you so much for coming along today. I've learnt a lot about poetry and the different ways that you can write and the wonder of young and old and a bit of conflict in there as well. And that covers it. Yeah. 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 Birth, death. I didn't actually read a love poem, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll talk to you next month. Uh, from us here, it's goodbye. <laughs>